Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 46, Some Things Were Not Meant to Be. Last time, Major David Sterling and his SAS men, along with units from the Long Range Desert Group, were approaching the port town of Borat in North Africa, about 50 miles west of Sirte. As Benghazi had just recently been taken away from the Axis forces, there was a good chance that Borat would become Rommel's new closest oil depot. And if so, the SAS was about to ruin the Desert Fox's day, and many more for the foreseeable future. Thinking in broad terms, Sterling had even brought along a wooden canoe to be able to get up close to any ships in the port and so plant his Lewis bombs. Sinking a ship in the harbor would effectively block the port from any other ships docking there. Hoping to offload thousands of tons of the vital substance that made his war machines go. But David wasn't the only one after Borat. The RAF representative had explained to Sterling when he was in Cairo that they were coming after the port's facilities too during the night of January 24th to the 25th. So, whatever David was going to do within the limited time of the moonless nights, he'd better do it on the night of the 23rd to the 24th. When David and his team, along with the LRDG, set out on January 17, 1942, from Jalo, the group consisted of six transport trucks and one wireless truck, all property of the LRDG. Those 12 men of that group, along with their patrol leader, Captain Hunter, and the invaluable navigator, Sadler, would do everything they could to help David and his men succeed in their mission. But once in the desert, after a few days of utter quiet and isolation, things started going wrong for Sterling. First, trying to get updated intelligence from Cairo about the location of the underground oil bunkers at Borat, the LRDG was forced to break radio silence and check in to see if the information was ready. They got no reply for their risks, but now had to assume that the Axis, with their German radio detection abilities, now had an idea that the enemy was in the area. Next, the assembly-required canoe broke when the truck carrying it hit a hole, causing the craft and the men to bounce around. David made the best of this worsening situation by saying, Well, good. Now we don't have to carry a damned canoe through the desert, and we can focus on the facilities on land, thus speeding up the planting of our bombs. But further setting up the men for failure was when they lost a few precious hours of the day they were going to attack. Their radio transmission had indeed been picked up, which meant planes, mostly bombers, were near their position for most of the day, occasionally dropping bombs, hoping to flush out the enemy. And whether it was the luckiest of bombs or some other circumstance, the wireless truck and its three operators were never seen again as the group reassembled after the last attack. Whatever happened, there would be no contact with the outside world until they returned to Jalo. Because they were behind schedule, the night was utterly black, and the silence remained as they closed in on Borat, it was decided to carry the assault team, broken into three groups, in a single truck to travel within a mile of the town. But even then, by the time the men were climbing down, 
it was already midnight, and they had to rendezvous in just two hours to make good their escape. Yet Captain Duncan and his team of Corporals Barr and Rose, as they were tasked with hitting the wireless station two miles on the other side of the city, they were told to plant their bombs and then make for the desert about eight miles out. They would not be picked up that night. Instead, they were to hide out in the desert, hopefully find a cave to escape the sun, and wait for pickup the next night. The thinking was, the Axis would not be assuming their attackers would actually be hiding out close to their targets after the assault in the middle of the desert. As Duncan and his smaller team took off across the town, Sterling broke up the remaining men into two teams of six and seven each. One would accompany him, the other would go with Sergeant Major Riley. Each team was given five minutes to get into position on different sides of the harbor, and then they would start planting their bombs throughout the area and meet in the middle. As it was already near 12.30 and they had to leave by 2.30, each bomb would be set to go off at that time, which meant that as they planted their later bombs, those fuses would have to be cut to ignite at the same time as the earlier ones. David and his team started straight for the pier. Using the water to get his bearings, Sterling could not get over the utter quiet of the place. Their steps sounded like thunder at the height of a storm. But then David smelled oil and realized a tanker had probably come in that day and was emptied, which meant everyone had worked hard and was now sound asleep. Walking to the nearest building, Sterling had half his men stay outside as lookouts, while the others went in and distributed their bombs. It has to be said, not only was the building entrance unguarded, the main door was unlocked. When the team entered, before them was a large, strange machine, surmised to be some type of pumping engine. It received several bombs placed in various locations around it. The team exited the building and headed for another one. This door was locked, but not guarded. And what's more, the window next to the door was unlocked. David slipped inside, followed by his men. This storage unit was stuffed with crates of foodstuffs. So David and his men, actually grinning while they worked, walked around the room and placed dozens of their bombs. Two more structures quickly got this same treatment. At the fifth building, David heard a noise, and though he swore his men to absolute quiet, was about to use his firearm when Captain Duncan and his team came around the corner. Sterling, trying to get his heart back into his chest, was about to lob lightning bolts at Duncan, but the man answered that they had finished their side of the harbor, leaving bombs very much like David's team, alongside machinery and crates of food. Sterling looked around one last time before they left for the evacuation point. There were no ships in the harbor. The storage facilities would be gone by morning, but the underground fuel depots had eluded him. The moonless nights had their upsides and downsides. Still, they had achieved something worthy. So, heading out, as the town was still utterly dead quiet, they walked along the main road never once challenged, never once seen a single soul. As they walked, the men looked down, hoping to find the entrance to a depot, their chances slim, and they knew it. Yet Corporal Sinkings was looking around instead of down, 
making sure they weren't surprised during the last 10 minutes of their mission. But they did get a surprise, a fortuitous one. Soon, Seekings whispered and pointed to an area as they were just about a quarter of a mile from their rendezvous point. The men spread out in case they finally met any resistance. But they did not. What looked like strangely shaped small houses turned out to be rows and rows of fuel transport trucks within a very large car park. A quick glance told David that each vehicle seemed to be able to carry about 20 tons of fuel and by the smell, they were not empty. Grinning like little boys going to the circus for the first time, the men spread out and made sure each truck had several bombs placed in or under it. It was now 0145. Time to go. But before reaching their pickup point, they came across another car park. This one held 12 lorries, which, as the SAS men knew, were invaluable in the desert. Within five minutes, each lorry had a few bombs now near it. Meeting up with Hunter of the LRDG, the men loaded up, hoping Duncan and his team fared just as well, and that they would see them tomorrow night, and then turned into the desert at 0235. A minute later, the first bomb went off, followed by another, and then another. This went on for some time. The next morning brought the anxiety of enemy planes buzzing overhead, looking for the saboteurs. But it also brought a sandstorm. Normally, this was most unwelcome, as the sand got into everything, which then had to be disassembled, cleaned, and put back together. But at least now, no planes would be put in jeopardy by looking for them. That night, they found Duncan and his team. His signal a pile of brush and rocks led the SAS to his hideout cave. As for the radio station, the communications hub of Borat, the smaller team left the equivalent of 30 pounds of TNT around the structure. David reveled in this victory, but he wasn't done. He put forth the idea, instead of an order, that they should use the confusion from the attack to get onto the coast road, head west away from their front line, and place bombs on anything they came across. This worked out better than anyone could have guessed, but it did give the enemy time to look for their attackers. So, as the SAS and LRDG were heading back to Jalo, they drove right through an ambush. Fortunately, the driver had the sense to step on the gas instead of the brake, while everyone else brought up their tummy guns and let rip. Turns out, with all due respect, it was an Italian ambush. Afterward, the SAS doubted they actually hit anyone because they had been caught so off guard, but they were amazed that they themselves had gotten through. None worse for the wear. David heard the bullets whizzing by his head and just knew the driver was hit. But once again, Providence seemed to be with the SAS. As they made their way back to Jalo, David couldn't shake the feeling that as successful as his mission had been, they hit practically everything worth hitting. There should have been more, more of everything. After all, if this was Rommel's new forward supplies base, it should have been crawling with surprise and all its paraphernalia. But what Sterling didn't know, what Auchinleck would have loved to have known, was that Rommel was not thinking in terms of falling back to regroup. 
No, he was building up and planned very soon to hit back and retake Benghazi. Not only was it the gem of Cyrenaica and a great port city, but for those very reasons, it could not be left in the hands of the enemy. On January 12th, when David had flown back to Jalo from Cairo, Rommel's army was quietly sitting at Mersa Brega along the coast, about 150 miles south of Benghazi, between Agadabia and Aguila. On that same day, Auchinleck wrote to Churchill that the Axis army seemed weak and appeared to be falling into disorganization. The silence emanating from Mersa Brega continued for another nine days. But then, on January 21st, 24 hours before David radioed in to get the updated information about the underground oil tankers, the Desert Fox tore out of Mersa Brega, astonishing the Allied men before him as well as Auchinleck. Within eight days, Benghazi was back in his hands, as was most of Cyrenaica. The bulk of the Allied forces, not captured, had been pushed back to Gazala, and it was there that the C&C Middle East decided to firm up his lines. Auchinleck also hoped the Desert Fox wouldn't continue to push, because, quite frankly, the British weren't ready. But of these events, the SAS and LRDG knew nothing, being without their wireless truck. Yet, getting the feeling that something was off, Hunter, the leader of the LRDG, brought out his personal wireless set and eventually was able to pick up the BBC. Only then did they learn of Rommel's advance. Ironically, the position of the front line didn't really affect the SAS work, but they were affected by the fact that most assuredly Jalo had been abandoned, and their supplies were such that they had just enough to get them back there. Also, if it wasn't already in German hands, it was probably being watched by the Axis to capture anyone who went to Jalo. In this, David was half right. Jalo had been abandoned, but the Germans weren't there yet. But instead, there had been dozens of traps left by the angry SAS men who were forced to head east and leave David behind. Fortunately, none of the men with David picked up the wrong item as they returned to camp. As the SAS men moved to their new home, Siwa, about 200 miles east of Jalo and just over 200 miles south of Solom and Bardia, David, the ranking officer, returned to Cabrit, near the Suez. There he found a despondent Paddy Maine, who refused to be left out of any field work from now on. So, David put Sergeant Major Riley in charge of training, and Bill Cumper, whose cockney accent charmed the French soldiers, in charge of ordnance. With that settled, David got back to the future of the SAS. As Auchinleck was building up his forces behind his Gazala line to then surge at Rommel, David calculated that he and his could not attack until sometime in March, the next period of moonless nights. And in that interval, both sides would be stockpiling reserves of men and material, which meant that any damage the SAS could inflict would hopefully keep the Axis in check while giving the Allies a true advantage. And soon the details were worked out. Bill Fraser would take a small group and see what damage they could do at Brasse, 
about 50 miles to the northeast of Benghazi. A new man on the team who had been put through his paces, Lieutenant Dobb, would be the leader of another small team who would attack Slanta, located between Benghazi and Derna. This left Patty and David to hit the airfields Burka and Benina, just outside Benghazi. But David Sterling wouldn't be David Sterling, the Phantom Major, unless he considered really taking the war to the enemy. He didn't go in for the amassing of armies clashing at each other. He truly believed that it was possible, especially in the desert, to bleed the enemy to the point that they would not only be able to fight, but be unable to defend themselves and thus see the folly of their attempts. So, in the midst of helping to check Rommel and soften the way for Auchinleck, David planned on a raid of Benghazi itself, the jewel of Cyrenaica. But it was not to be an amphibious assault. Well, mostly. The SAS would drive into the major city, bold as brass, assemble their canoe that had been damaged on the way to Borat, cut through the wire that lined the water side of the harbor, and attach his Lewis bombs to damn near everything he could touch. Ships, facilities, storage units, anti-air guns, barracks, ammo dumps, repair facilities, whatever would inflict the most significant damage. Of course, David ran into static with this idea. He always did. But he kept calm and just kept asking for the right personnel to make his Benghazi raid possible. And in the end, everyone else just grew tired and gave up fighting him. And by this strategy, he gathered his crew. From the Middle East commandos, he acquired Gordon Alston. From the special boat section, he nabbed Lieutenant David Sutherland and Captain Ken Allett. But to truly test the defenses of Benghazi, David was introduced to a Belgian businessman, Bob Malo, who had done business in Alexandria and North Africa before the war. Malo suggested taking two Senussi warriors with him. As David would be approaching Benghazi from the east, from the Jebel mountain range to the east and southeast of the city, these two men not only knew the area well, but would not raise any suspicions if they approached the city, as their tribe was stationed at the base of the mountains. David quickly agreed. Once they settled down at the base of the Jebel range, Paddy departed for his raid. The two Senussi warriors headed east to reconnaissance the defenses of Benghazi. When the two men came back, reporting no roadblocks, Sterling was hardly surprised, and so told his men to load up. The team, consisting of Sterling, his newly acquired specialists, and two SAS men, had no trouble entering the town after dark. Yet, it all came to nothing, as their boat somehow, again, got damaged and refused to inflate. This model was supposed to be to make up for the mistakes of the last one. But David decided not to give away that the SAS had been there by bombing unimportant targets. They would return with a better boat. While waiting to take another crack at the big prize that was Benghazi, Sterling soon set out for Benina. Actually, he made two trips there. The first time, the airfield was deserted, but the second time, it was stuffed with dummy airplanes. It seems the enemy was catching on to him. Yet he did manage to find a storage of torpedoes 
and so helped them explode long before they got anywhere near an Allied ship. As the larger team reassembled, David found that he had done better than most. Only Patty Maine outdid him by destroying 15 aircraft at the Burka airfield. Those lost planes would not be able to hunt for the SAS or for British ships in the Mediterranean, which, before too long, would grow in importance and would in fact come to dominate the lives of the SAS, every soul on Malta, and Auchinleck's career. As Sterling was about to make his second attempt at Benghazi, he told Fitzroy McLean to find a watercraft that would get the job done and to test it before they set out. McLean did as ordered, but just to be doubly sure, David wanted a live-action test. So he would attack the British shipping at Alexandria. But just as he had done against his own side's aircraft at Heliopolis, the limpets magnetized to the holes of the British ships did not contain explosives. After the raid was carried out, David rung up the port authorities and asked them politely would they be so kind as to return his limpets to him. The Royal Navy, just as had the Royal Air Force, did not find this attack amusing. By mid-May, the SAS was ready to move out again, but this time they had a new member, one Randolph Churchill, son of the Prime Minister. Randolph had not been through all the training, yet had completed the parachute course, which didn't mean much as they weren't jumping out of airplanes. But the young man from Number 8 Commando used his silver tongue to convince Sterling that he should be allowed to come along. Yet David was not convinced. But when one of his own men was injured just before they left, he decided to give the young man a chance. Bringing out his Ford utility vehicle, made to look like a Africa Corps staff car, the SAS headed out, made for the Jeb El mountain range, and then for Benghazi on the night of May 21st. Yet as David and company were able to more or less stroll throughout the city and make for the water's edge, his first of two damned boats, as well as the second damned boat, would not inflate. Again, something beyond his command was stymieing the young leader. Hoping to try again the next night, the crew hid in an apartment on a second floor of an abandoned building, just down the block from Gestapo headquarters. But as night came, the two boats could not be made to work again, nor could they access any local vessels along the pier. That would have required a firefight, something beyond the ability of the small band of men. Defeated and dejected, under the cover of darkness, Sterling and his men left the port city. Yet, bad luck was not done with the SAS. Not yet. Right before reaching Cairo, with David behind the wheel, something everyone agreed was not the best use of military assets, the car's right rear wheel was struck by a passing-by tank. The tank was fine, but the car turned over and over. A reporter who they were giving a ride to was killed. McLean spent the next three months in the hospital with a fractured skull. Young Churchill suffered a crushed vertebra and was sent home. And Sterling found he had cracked a bone in his left wrist. Being out of action was torment for the young man. But events were swirling around him, and these winds would affect them all and their leaders 
their careers, and their lives. Greetings, everyone. Uh, so sorry for disappearing for a while. Uh, got sick, whole family sick, lost the voice. You know, you know how it goes. You just lay in bed, you're miserable. So again, very sorry about that. But the second one will be out um, uh, before the end of the year, and the next regular World War II episode will be out on December 28th. I'm just trying to add as much to it as I possibly can. So for this episode's randomly chosen um, coffee mug winner is Mark Peterson. So Mark, if you could send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com, uh, I can get your details and mail it to you. And just for whatever, you can have a, a Churchill, you can have an FDR, you can have a Caesar, you can have an Alexander the Great mug, coffee mug, whichever of those you want, you just let me know and I'll be happy to mail it out to you. And, I can, and you can see pictures on Facebook, but I'll, I'll be happy to send you a picture as well. So just really busy here, but um, I'll be out with the next one in a couple days in the regular episode on the 28th, and I wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, uh, Happy New Year. Oh, and just to let you know, uh, and, and I'll make the announcement on the uh, next regular episode, uh, but you can, you can get a head start. I'm having another contest this year just to end out the year. I found some Nazi coins um, issued right before war breaks out uh, in 1939. So if you want to be in the drawing for that, and I'll get my daughters to draw like I have done in the past. If you want, I have four different coins. So if you want to be in the drawing for that, just send me an email to um, wwiipodcast at gmail.com put contest in the subject so I can group all those together and we'll do that. And again, it's just a way to thank you for listening to the show. Um, if you're a member or not, and just, uh, sharing your time with me, cause it really does mean a lot to me. So as you can tell, my voice is not quite, um, <clears throat> where it should be, but hopefully, um, you, you found this, um, uh, episode not so painful to listen to. But anyway, so just send me that for the contest and I'll be doing uh, drawing the contest probably in mid-January just to give everybody enough time to, uh, to enter. So again, thank you for your patience and you will hear from me soon. I promise. <laughs>